morning. Every time I read, uh, I come to a church like this, a liturgical church that is um, reading the Old Testament lesson, the Psalm, and then the New Testament lesson, and then the Gospel. To me, it's like an embarrassment of riches. I just say, oh, if only we had 45 minutes, we could really do justice to one of these. Um, but uh, I, I want to, um, first off, welcome you to Church of the Resurrection, Church of the Res, as it's called, and uh, also welcome Bishop Alan Hawkins. He'll introduce himself and say a few words, a um, few more words a little bit later. And I just have to say to those of you who are visiting and kind of kicking the tires of churches, seeing if this is the church um, you are interested in and, and that you should belong to, um, kick no more. <laughs> uh, this is such a fine place, and they're in the middle of a search process. And uh, I know with the kind of team that they have with Bishop Hawkins leading the charge, the search, um, this church will find a great next uh, senior pastor. For me, um, I just got back from Europe last night. I've been on a, a junket, if you will. I spent five days in Paris and then went to Greece where I met up with 60 people and did a tour of the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. We started up in the northern part of Macedonia and ended up down in Athens. And then um, from Athens, we got on a cruise ship with 1,200 of our closest friends and went to a couple of the Greek islands and then ended up in Ephesus and Patmos and then back to Corinth. And then most of the group went home, but 25 brave souls uh, followed me on a three- or four-day trip to Rome and then even on a one-day trip to Florence. You know, we saw Florence in one day. They said it couldn't be done, but we did. And then last night uh, we got in and if I fall asleep during this message, uh, just some, someone can sort of come up and nudge me. But I tell you what, walking around the ruins, going from a, you know, a very sophisticated place like Dallas-Fort Worth area, or even from these sophisticated European cities to the ruins of Philippi or Ephesus or even parts of Rome or Thessaloniki where the Apostle Paul went and, and traveled, it's quite humbling because a reflective person sees all this happening and realizes that we are just, honestly, just passing through. My life seems pretty full, all 68 years of it so far, but it's going to be gone one day, too soon. In, as, and it, I, whatever impression I will have made, I have made, or I will make in the next decade or so, and then it's over. And whatever thoughts I have, whatever ideas I have, you know, it just, it set against the backdrop of time, it, you can't help but be humbled by it. And while we were there, the war broke out in Israel, which did nothing but confirm the fact that we are just passing through, that for thousands of years of recorded history, countries, nations all around the globe have always been at war, raising up their civilizations and destroying them, it seems, against the passage of time overnight. I love Israel. I've been there 40-plus times. I've led pilgrimages there of probably 2,000 people now. 
I've got lots of friends in Israel, um, Palestinian friends and Jewish friends, the guides, the drivers, the vendors, the business leaders. And while I'm walking through the ruins of whatever town we were in, Ephesus, I've got my mobile device and looking on Twitter and seeing nations in another part of the world, but not that far distant, destroying each other, turning whatever towns and villages they're talking about over there, in this case, the Gaza, into kind of the ruins that we saw right before us. Unspeakable horror, evil we have never even imagined, rained down on this on these Israelis. Many people compare it to the Nazis of the previous century, and it's actually worse. When you think about it, the Nazis were aware of their evil. They tried to do it in sort of hideaway places, and they destroyed uh, the records of their own involvement in this genocide. But it seems like Hamas is just doing the opposite. They're touting it. They're putting it on social media, and the the things that are happening true, and I'm sure war, you know, they say truth is the first casualty of war, but in this case, it sure seems like there's this terrible, terrible atrocities being um, inflicted upon these people. The guide that some of you know because you've been to Israel with me, his name is Sam. He and I were texting back and forth. And characteristically, Sam is an optimist, and he just said, you know, that all of this will one day pass, and he would remain steadfast with these simple words, the Lord is my shepherd. And then when I saw the, the reading for today from Psalm 23, I just, I knew I had to come and talk to you about it. Psalm 23, I've studied this psalm in detail. In fact, during the pandemic, the opening months of the pandemic, my my quiet time on, uh, turned into a, a book on Psalm 23, and I actually have some left over from a project I was doing with Bishop Hawkins a couple of years ago, and I asked Dean if I could bring them out and just make them available to you. They will be available to you after the service on your way out. Pick one up. Um, I'd love, I, I want to make them um, available to you as a donation to Hope Ignited, Dean, is that right? Hope Ignited. Um, and how do you determine the kind of donation? Well, I'll tell you what, if, if you're going to read it, um, $10 is a great donation. I'm not receiving anything, of course, but $10. If you're not going to read it, $30 is a better donation. Okay, so you choose $10 or $30, whatever you like, but it's 23 meditations on the 23rd Psalm. The book is called, When the Lord is My Shepherd. And what I did was I took the, the text of the 23rd Psalm and just added the word when to each of the attributes of God. And when you put the word when the Lord is my shepherd, the attribute of his being a, a shepherd becomes a promise. When the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I will lie down, etc. So I thought I'd bring some ideas about the 23rd Psalm. Can we put it up on the screen? 
It's, of course, the most beloved psalm in the world. It's been read at bedsides and gravesides. It's been read in foxholes. When I was a young Christian, you know, 21, 22 years old, I read it every time or memorized it every time I was in an airplane that was taking off or landing. And I remember one time I was, let's see, I mean, it was maybe 28, 29. I was going on an interview for the church. I was a big shot going to interview in Michigan for a church position. And I said to my wife, as we uh, getting ready to take off, I said, you know, I usually take your, your hand and hold it, and I repeat the words of the 23rd Psalm on takeoff. But, you know, I'm a sophisticated clergyman now. I know that my Psalm 23 uh, recitation is not keeping this plane aloft or helping to land it safely. And I'm not joking. We were in Tucson, Arizona. We were about to take off, and I was... And I decided, I'm not going to say it. And just about when you'd expect the wheels up and the plane to be lifted, the, the pilot slammed on the brakes, stopped, and he said on the loudspeaker, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to do that again. That just didn't seem right to me. And from that point on, every time we take off or land, my prayers, my reciting of Psalm 23 gets us going. But as I say, it's a, it's a psalm that has been used in foxholes as well. In fact, I submit it to you today as one of the best wartime psalms of all. Because make no mistake, we are at war. And we don't have it here yet. But this tension that all of us have felt in the world boils over every once in a while, erupts in certain locations. And I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm not making any prediction. But my hunch is, my strong hunch, is that we will be impacted by the events of the world here in significant ways. How those look, I don't know. But I want to look at this 23rd Psalm, but I want you to get it as a whole, okay? I want you to understand it. As an enti in its entirety. Now, I know this is going to be a little stretch for some of you who have maybe left your binoculars at home, but I want you to just read this with me, okay? You know enough of it that you can probably fake it as we go through, but just read it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As I say, it's one of the most beloved pieces of poetry, biblical poetry, a psalm in the world, written by a deeply emotional and terribly flawed human being, David who was a murderer, we know. He was an adulterer. He was a poet, 
obviously, and a king. He loved God. He was a repentant man. But we know the stories of his life. We know that he was driven by his own excesses. And the most famous of all sins that he had with Bathsheba, if you really study that, and it would take seven weeks to do it, but you'd see that it is an intersection of the seven deadly sins all at once in a single afternoon. Pride, David said, I deserve this. Lust, I want it. Sloth, I've got the time. Greed, she's someone else, but I want her. Envy, she belongs to something else, but I want what he has. Wrath, I'm so angry at this this man who won't really help me out here and leave and take his wife back in, and finally, gluttony. While it isn't there, I'm sure, pretty sure there's a lot of wine and stuff like that involved in this incident. So in that way, David is like us. Maybe our sins are not the seven-way intersection of the seven deadlies, but we are often driven by our own desires to do things that we know we shouldn't do. Anytime I think about the 23rd Psalm and I think about the poet King David, I think about those sculptures and tapestries and, and uh, portraits hanging in European galleries that I can't remember the French technique of it is, but, you know, there's the kind of, of um, portrait where the subject of the portrait is looking at you, and you can move to one side of the frame or not, and it seems like his eyes follow you wherever you go in the gallery. That's David. His eyes, his life, his choices, his bad choices, and his broken heart follow us wherever we go. Now, if we look at this psalm and just look at it as a, as a work of art, just the psalm itself, I want to show you something. It's a circle. It starts with, the Lord is my shepherd, and then the word Lord is never used again till the very end, where David comes all the way back, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the exact center of the psalm is where it says, for thou art with me. The thou is another. If, if, it, were, if it were done right or, or done um, um, you know, literally, it would be, for the Lord is with me. So the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is with me. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The psalm is... 55 Hebrew words long, okay? 26 words followed by the numerical center of the psalm, three words, followed by 26 more words. And the exact center of this psalm is where the pronouns change from the Lord, he is my shepherd, to thou art with me. Did, have you noticed that? that it starts out in a rather objective way. The Lord, he is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. And then it gets really personal in the second half. Thou preparest, you prepare a table before me. And in this little device that King David 
offers us. He is really outlining the journey of faith. That when we are young and we come to faith, we are absolute, absolutely convinced that God is the Lord. That I am with him. And I want to be on his team. And by the end of our life, by the end of the Christian journey, we've made the journey from the head where we know something about God to the heart where we know him. Some preachers call it the 12 inches journey from the head to the heart. And it takes a lifetime to travel from an understanding that God objectively is God of all things to God subjectively is my God and my Lord. And you see this in the psalm. It begins outside, in the field, unprotected, dependent upon grass and meadows and water. And look where it ends. It ends in a house. It ends in a palace. That also is part of the journey. So I had a lot of time on the plane yesterday to think about this. And when I think about it, I would say this has been my own Christian journey over the years. I, I became a Christian when I was 17 or 18 years old. And I remember the first sense I had about myself relative to God. It was that I am with him. I'm a member of the family. I am a member of the tribe. And God was, he helped me know good from bad. And he helped me know good from best. And he helped me know what the moral life was and how far my life wasn't close to the moral life that he wanted for me. He helped me make choices and come out with a direction in my life. I think I'm talking to many of you who have known that you were a believer, you know about him. But then I, as I got thinking about it, I realized that the middle 30 years of my life, it was different. That It was like I'm not just with him, I am for him. And that's when I became a priest. And that's when I sort of saw myself as a defender of the faith. That not only was I with him, but I was going to work for him. And all my life's energy, everything I tried to do in life was to, was to advocate. Every ounce of leadership that I could muster was to advocate for him. I am for God. And in these last years... I feel, I know, that while the first two positions were true, that I am with God and I am for him, but it's become clearer and clearer to me as I look upon my life that he's with me. That I am the one that he loves. That this is something I can rely on no matter what the externals look like in my life. In fact, I, 
I want to encourage you to think about your life as this journey, this 12-inch journey from head to heart, where you start out with, I am with him, to he's with me. And just imagine that that actually is an explanation of the Christian faith in a nutshell. It's what you might call an elevator speech. You know, what's the, what's the essence of the Christian faith that you could describe to another person in a matter of seconds in an elevator moving from the second to the third floor? What is it? You get on an elevator, and somebody in there looks at you, and they see a cross, or they see on your lapel, they see a, a cross or a, a little insignia of your faith. And they say to you, well, okay, um, what actually do Christians believe? And they hit the floor button that they're going to and realize you've got just seconds to explain. I submit to you that it's not a bad idea simply to say that God is with me. From the moment I took a breath to the end when I will take not a single other breath, God is with me. In fact, when I thought about this, remember I had ten and a half hours on the plane yesterday to think about that. Once I saw that very simple phrase that God is with me right there at the, at the numerical center of this psalm, I began to understand the faith of Paul, for example. I, I mean, studied, and our, my trip was that I just got off was called the life or the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. And it was amazing because you study him as he goes into, let's say, Philippi. He causes a ruckus. A riot ensues, and they grab Paul, and they beat him within an inch of his life, and they throw him in prison. And there he is in shackles, and he got bruised and beaten. He looks terrible. He's with his, his uh, counterpart, his, his colleague, Silas. And about midnight, the Bible says in the book of Acts, they were singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Maybe they were singing about Psalm 23. And no one could believe it. Even the jailer was so convinced by their hope and their faith that God was with them that when they're finally released due to an earthquake, the jailer comes to faith. The idea that this great God of the universe that seems admittedly at first thought to be so distant and removed and detached from human life is a God that's actually with me in my life, no matter what I do, no matter where I go, that's the God that Paul sang about. That's the God of Psalm 23. Do you know I was with you a couple of years ago? Some of you weren't members of this church, but back in the, do you call it your, the daycare days when you were back in the other school? That's what I call it. Back when you were in the... Your pastor, Brian Poppy, asked me to come out and preach to you in the first chapter of the book of Job, and I did. 
remember what I said? I won't be hurt. I remember what I said. Because I loved the idea behind it. That Job was a man with everything that went wrong. Everything, everything he cared about was taken away. His family, his children, his life, his, I mean, not his life, his, but his health. And the entire book of Job is about him wrestling with what does this mean? That God would allow this kind of thing to go on in my life. And Job never gets the answer that we would want. But I tell you what happens at the end. Job says, you know, before I had heard of you as with the hearing of an ear up in his head. I had heard about you, God. But through this experience of loss, Job concludes, but now my eye sees you. In my terms, he had gone from head to heart. I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that this is the psalm we need in times of war. Because it pictures, if you just allow me just a brief moment more, it pictures death in two metaphors, two ideas. It pictures death as a, as a valley. And you know what happens to valleys? They open up. Valleys always end. You just got to go through them. And the psalm is saying about life and about death particularly, that the only way out of death is through it. This is an intensely Christian idea. That the way I get from this life to the next life is through a valley, which ultimately ends in an open landscape in the presence of God. And the other idea that the psalm is giving us right here is that it's not just a valley, but it's also shadows. The valley of the shadow of death. Somehow, when you think about death as being a shadow, it doesn't seem as scary anymore. Because you know what shadows need to disappear? Light. All shadows are gone in a second with light. The psalm is saying to us about the eventuality of our death is that both are temporary. Both valleys and shadows are temporary. I think this is why the psalm is a wartime psalm. I think it's why it's spoken on the battlefield. It's why I think from a pastoral point of view, I can encourage you to memorize this psalm during these days. You'll be the stronger for it. Let me conclude this by trying to connect it to our life together as humans on this planet. Reading through the, the work of the Apostle Paul, 
He would, you know, he, what he did, he would move into a town. He would start a church, let's say like this one. And then he would write letters back to it and try to correct their behavior. Try to clean up some of the loose ends, some of the colorful additions and addictions that these people had. But there was always a pastoral tone to each of his letters. You know what the, these people cared mostly about? They wanted to know about death. Because death in the ancient world, as it is today, is everywhere. It's one per customer in the world. And Paul always ministered to people by explaining that death was he didn't say it in these terms, but he certainly meant it and knew it. It was a valley that you walk through. It's a shadow that is scattered when light comes. And when you understand that, then the biggest choices that you have about where to put your loyalties, where to put your values, where to put your energy, your time, your commitments, all of that gets sorted out. Let me see if I can explain why. I'll tell you a very quick story. There's a woman in our church in Plano um, whose husband was a very close friend of mine. And he came out on a Saturday from watching a football game, was talking to his wife, and all of a sudden his, his mouth speech got garbled. And he fell and he hit his head. And he had a bleed. And he was rushed to the hospital. And he was hooked up to all kinds of machines. That's when I got involved. I went to pray with him, pray for him, and pray for her. And day by day, things did not get any better. And it was very clear the doctors finally said that this man, my good friend, her husband of 30 years, would not recover. He was going to be in that vegetative state for the, as long as his heart kept going. And he was a strong man. And so the doctors proposed to her that she had a choice. Either she could move him into a rehab center and just let him live day by day in this endless state of vegetation. Or she could, what we would crudely say today, pull the plug. She didn't know what to do. She loved him. But this is one of those things where you just, you got to put your faith to the test. What does God want me to do? And she called me. I remember the moment, I remember where I was standing when my phone rang. And she explained to me everything I just explained to you. And she said, I don't know what to do, David. I said, well, let me ask you this. Are you a Christian? She said, absolutely. Was he a Christian? Yes, absolutely. Were you married in a Christian church? Yes. Do you understand Christian marriage? She said, yes. I said, what's your hesitation? Well, I just don't know whether he should, you know, stay here. And maybe, 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 maybe there's a miracle. But the doctors never say um, people come out of this. Or maybe he just goes to be with the Lord. And I said, If you're a Christian and you were married in a Christian church and you both love the Lord, then theologically, 
spiritually, the two of you are one. And she said, I believe that. We've been one all of our married life. And I said, then what would you want if that were you? What about you? If you were there, what do, would you want? And whatever you'd want is what he wants. And she said, oh, that's easy. I don't want to go home and be with the Lord. And within an hour or two that had happened to my friend, he died and went to the Lord because my, his wife, Charlotte, stood on the promise that is only hinted at here in Psalm 23. That death is a valley. It's a shadow. And the only way out of it is through it. That's why I say, in this time of war, take this, memorize it, meditate on it, see whatever comes in these next weeks and months to follow, see that wor these world events in the lens of this kind of hope. Where the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want where he makes me to lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters, where he restores my soul, leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou, God, art with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.